Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, broadcasting to you from our studio in the metro Washington, D.C. area. On today's show, consider this. About every 14 days, somewhere around the world, a language dies. Linguist David Harrison and author of The Last Speakers, The Quest to Save the World's Most Endangered Languages, joins us to talk about the world's vanishing languages and his quest to keep them alive. Then Chef Jerome Brown stops by to share his journey from his humble North Carolina roots to become a celebrated personal chef to the stars. And Chef Jerome isn't finished yet as he shares with us today. And finally, Sylvia Allen has leveraged her skills as a PR executive and marketing professor to help the children of Uganda with the nonprofit she founded, Sylvia's Children. And she joins us today to share how she's leaving positive footprints in Uganda. As always, if you have a question or a comment, email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. You know, I'm always amazed at the, the caliber of guests we have in today's show is just displays the wonderful people that we meet on World Footprints, and we're happy to share that with you. And certainly, you, our listening audience, we're happy to connect with you during the week on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Stitcher, a mobile app that lets you listen to World Footprints on a mobile device, any mobile device, in fact. And uh, we're always happy to uh, to follow you or have you follow us, really, in real time. And so we invite you to join us on all of our social networks and sign up for our newsletter and travel deals at worldfootprints.com. In addition to all of the good things Tanya just told you about, we're proud to share with you some great news about the release of a new travel app that Tanya and I co-authored for Baltimore called Baltimore and Beyond out on iTunes. And we just want you to check it out at uh, the iTunes store and uh, look for Baltimore and Beyond, a wonderful new travel app promoting Charm City, the Chesapeake Bay, and the surrounding region. And also we have a page for our travel apps at worldfootprints.com, and so you can look for Baltimore and beyond there as well. It may surprise you to know that about every 14 days, a language dies. David Harrison is a renowned linguist and author of The Last Speakers, The Quest to Save the World's Most Endangered Languages, published by National Geographic. He travels the world exploring vanishing languages. David, welcome. Thank you, Ian. Good to be here. Tell us what's lost when a language dies. Well, Ian, as you mentioned, I've spent uh, the last 10 years or so meeting some of the last speakers of languages. And I can tell you from their perspective, there is a great sense of loss. Uh, They're losing their history, their culture, their mythology, their belief. From the perspective uh, of us, uh, that is people who speak big global languages like English, uh, we're losing uh, technologies or what I call the human knowledge base, knowledge about plants and animals and ecosystems, things that science doesn't necessarily know yet. Now, you mentioned technology and and how that's affecting the ability to preserve history and culture and even language, and, and we often think that technology is a facilitator of communication, but you seem to be saying something slightly different. Well, I'm using the word technology in a different sense. I'm not talking about apparatus or okay. computers or things. When I say technology, I mean knowledge about how to 
do something. So I've lived in Siberia, for example, with reindeer herders. They have uh, managed to survive and thrive in one of the harshest environments on Earth. And they've done this by perfecting the technology of breeding domesticated reindeer and using them for hunting. So they, their language reflects this technology. They have a complex system for classifying reindeer. And uh, in a single word, they can express the concept like four-year-old male uncastrated domesticated reindeer. Hmm. Um, so that's a technology, a survival technology that they possess in their language. And it's something that we're losing as the language goes extinct. Uh, David, I know your explorations have taken you really around the world, but even to locations like McDonald's in Michigan or a trailer park in Utah. And when we think about a lost language, we generally think of an exotic, primitive language such as the one you're just speaking about. Tell us about these distinguishments and, and, and these lost languages in more remote or urban or suburban uh, U.S. cities. Yeah, Tanya, well, one of the things I, I discuss in my book, The Last Speaker, is a model that I call language hotspot. And this is an attempt to identify those areas around the world that have the highest levels of linguistic diversity and endangerment, and that we should prioritize. And there are some surprises that come out of the hotspots model. One is that we have language hotspots right here in the U.S. So Oklahoma, for example, is a language hotspot. It has uh, dozens of Native American languages, many of them very close to extinction. Um, Northern California and Washington State and Oregon are a language hotspot. And I, I like to tell people, you, you don't have to go to Siberia or Nepal to meet speakers of endangered languages. I've met them in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan. Mm -hmm. um, so we have Native American languages in this country that are also in danger of extinction. So so when you, my, my home state is Michigan, and so I'm sitting here thinking, what language could he be referring to? Are you referring to a Native American language or? I am indeed. And whenever I give a public lecture in the U.S., I ask the audience, you know, hey, do you guys know what the local indigenous language is that was spoken here before, you know, uh, Europeans and uh, settlers arrived? And oftentimes the audience uh, doesn't know at all. So in mm -hmm. Michigan, that language would be uh, Anishinaabemowin, which is also referred to as Ojibwe. Mm -hmm. um, it is uh, the native language spoken by the indigenous, the, the Native Americans who live in a, a very large area surrounding the Great lakes, including Michigan. And I was very fortunate um, to meet some of the Ojibwe speakers. Um, there's a wonderful language revitalization effort going on. Ojibwe is now taught at the University of Michigan, oh. uh, um, as well as at Eastern Michigan University. Uh -huh. So both in Ann Arbor and Ypsilanti, you can, and East Lansing, you can take courses uh, taught by uh, Dr. Margaret Newry, who's an Ojibwe speaker and language activist. And uh, she does wonderful things with the language, like posting it on her Facebook page. And uh, if you call her uh, office, it's on her answering machine. So really, they're putting the language out there through all these new uh, social networking channels and really trying to do something creative with it. David, when we think about the world today with uh, global interconnections and airline travel that's allowing people to to travel from one end of the planet to the other um, and we think about language uh, is language being lost or is it actually being relocated as people move what's 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 your sense of of this dynamic that's uh, taking place through the through through just some of the technology that we have where people have more freedoms and more ease of movement than they had centuries ago yeah we're we're all very familiar with the idea of language shift in immigrant families so if a family immigrates to the US from uh, let's say from Italy or from Greece or from Poland, 
you know, within a generation or two, typically the children have shifted over to speaking English only, and uh, sometimes they, they maybe even regret that they didn't learn the Italian that their grandmother spoke or something like that. But in those cases, of course, there are millions of people back in, in Europe still speaking those languages. In the case of the small endangered languages that I work on, they're typically not spoken anywhere else outside of the, the small village or the small community uh, where they exist. And so as people migrate to the cities uh, to, to work and so forth, um, those languages really have nowhere else to go. There's, there's no where else in the world where they're spoken. Mm. David, you know, on, on, on this show, we, we talk a lot about, um, we try to inspire people to experience, you know, have cultural immersion experiences and to, um, you know, really achieve a, uh, an appreciation for the local um, communities of the destinations they're, they're visiting. When a language dies, how, in your opinion, how does that affect the the culture of an area it deeply affects the culture because so much of cultural knowledge of course there's there are types of cultural knowledge that don't explicitly depend on language like uh, certain types of clothing or ornamentation that people may wear or uh, dances or music but so much of culture is tied up with languages expressed in language I like to give the example of the Inuit uh, people uh, of um, the Arctic Alaska mm-hmm. area um, they, there's a wonderful book uh, that explores what they know about ice and weather and in the book it gives 99 names for different sea ice formations um, they spend their lives basically observing the ice and they have a, a system for classifying it with 99 different labels as to its color, texture, uh, the meteorological conditions. So this is a, a very sophisticated knowledge base. Um, it exceeds what climate scientists know about Arctic sea ice. And because the Arctic sea ice is now vanishing and that hunting and gathering way of life is now vanishing, um, they're losing the culture as well as the language at the same time. Mm. David, I am curious with, with uh, as, as we talk about language, how does the so-called hidden languages become known within academic circles and, and within the research community? How, how does that dynamic take place? It's been really fascinating. Recently, uh, we've had a a lot of press, and I I wrote in my book, The Last Speakers, about what I called a hidden language. This is a language that's spoken by a small community, approximately 600 people in northeastern India. The language is called Koro, and of course, um, Koro is known to the local community, so uh, one should never use the word discover in relation to this. Um, However, the language was never previously recognized or acknowledged by local administrators uh, at the state or regional or national level within, within India. It was never accorded the status of a language. They simply said, oh, it's, it's just a dialect of something else. Um, and it was never recognized in the scientific record. So scientific journals, databases, um, the listing of the world's languages, uh, never recognized this language. So we um, went in in 2008 and began doing research and realized very quickly that Kora was a distinct language, and it had not been recognized by science, so it's new to science. Um, And so we announced it, and we hope that this announcement will lead to 
to will will elevate the language will help it gain the status that it deserves as a, as a language. Now, I know you've uh, as part of your research, you you travel the world as we mentioned and and you you speak to the last speakers or last speaker or speakers of uh, of these dying languages. Who is the most interesting last speaker you you've met and and, and share some of the stories of that meeting? Well, the last speakers, I mean, they're, they're, it's often more than a single individual. So I've been in many communities where there may be six or eight or 20 or 40, and I try to meet as many as possible. Uh, one of uh, them that really stands out in my mind is Johnny Hill, Jr. Um, he appeared in our film, The Linguists, and also came to the Sundance Film Festival um, uh, when the film premiered. Uh, Johnny Hill is uh, the last fluent speaker of Chimahuevi, which is a Native American language spoken in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And he really has a very moving um, and compelling life story. He talks about how he's, he's the only one in his generation who speaks the language because he was raised by his grandmother who spoke it well. His own parents didn't speak it. Uh, he went off to uh, first grade not speaking English and mm-hmm. felt very isolated and felt that the other kids were were laughing at him and making fun of him mm. so he felt somewhat ashamed and uh, but he didn't give up Chimahuevi of course he's learned English and speaks it fluently now but now at the other end of his lifespan as he's he's in his 60s now um, he finds himself linguistically isolated once again and he says you know all the elders have passed on I have to talk to myself if I mm. want to have a conversation in the language and so it's a very moving story about uh, linguistic survival, what it means, what it feels like to be a linguistic survivor, and the sense of loss and isolation. Why do languages die, and why are they dying at such a rapid rate, in your opinion? Yeah, that's a great question. It really is a, a global trend, and it has to do with the population density on Earth and with urbanization, or what you might call globalization. Um, small languages are under immense pressure, uh, but both political pressure, social pressure, um, to uh, and speakers are pressured and coerced to abandon them. Mm. They're often made to feel ashamed. They're made to feel that their languages are not suited for the modern world or for technology or are obsolete. Uh, I'm working very hard with the National Geographic to counter some of these forces by introducing uh, technology into some of these communities. I've built um, talking dictionaries on the Internet for a number of languages which had never previously had any presence on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And so that can help, again, to elevate these languages when uh, the members of the community see that their language is just as good as any other. It can appear on a web page uh, mm-hmm. or it, on the Internet. It Wait. is suitable for the modern world. Is that the National Geographic's um, Enduring Voice Project that you refer to? That's right, and I invite your listeners to visit us on the the web. Just Google for uh, Enduring Voices, and you can look at some of our expeditions around the world. You can see video and audio of last speakers. You can browse through the language hotspots map and visit those areas of the world that have the highest uh, levels of language endangerment. And um, would our audience members be um, able to participate with you on these trips, some of the the expeditions you go on? Occasionally we uh, bring people uh, along on trips, uh, usually people who have some technical skill or expertise like videography or photography. Um, We don't run commercial expeditions. These are scientific research expeditions, and we, we we also bring along um, indigenous scholars and language activists. Mm-hmm. So these aren't, um, they're not trips in that sense, but they are research expeditions. But people are, are invited to follow our expeditions on our webpage and uh, 
write us if they're interested in volunteering or participating in some way. Are there any other things that are being done to preserve uh, these languages in addition to National Geographic's Enduring Voice Project and some of the, the teachings uh, in academic universities? Absolutely. I, I emphasize this in, in my book, The Last Speakers. Language revitalization is a global grassroots movement, and languages can only be saved by the people who own those languages, that is, the speakers themselves. Outsiders and scientists can, of course, play a, a minor supporting role, and we, we are trying to do that. But it's really fascinating to see there is a kind of a pushback now against globalization, and many small language communities around the world are making a strategic decision that they don't have to give up their language and just be monolingual in English. They can be bilingual. They can keep their language and also learn a global language. And so they're doing wonderful things. I mentioned my friend in Michigan who puts Facebook postings up in the Ojibwe language. I've seen wonderful examples of young people performing hip-hop in endangered languages. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I've just created a new uh, YouTube channel. So if you look on YouTube under, under Enduring Voices, I've created a new YouTube channel that's devoted to video recording recordings of endangered languages. Some of them are recordings that I've made, but many of them uh, will be recordings that speakers have made themselves because they want to tell their stories and they've uploaded them to YouTube. So they're wonderful. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, global trend going on towards language revitalization, which I would encourage uh, you to keep your eye on. Well, David, as uh, you mentioned this uh, topic of language re revitalization and how that is connected with uh, history, cultural preservation, and, and so forth, it seems to me that uh, you are probably onto something that could help American educators in terms of making our kids more worldly and more open to seeing and exploring the world through a language study. Uh, this is just an important topic and area of interest that I think has some pretty profound implications for the society in which we live and the society we hope to be. I would agree, and we have a very odd uh, attitude towards bilingualism in this country. We somehow feel that it's, it's it, uh, threatening or that it slows down a child's development. That's not true at all. In fact, there's a large body of research now coming out of psychology which shows that the bilingual brain is smarter, is more agile, more cognitively fit in certain ways. Uh, for example, it has a person who's bilingual throughout their lifespan has a lower uh, probability of getting Alzheimer's in old age. So there are many ways in which adding a second language into your brain or even a third benefits you, makes you smarter in certain ways and healthier. So I would encourage people to not be afraid of learning another language, especially uh, children. That's the ideal age to learn a language, and it really will expand your mind. David Harrison, author of The Last Speakers, The Quest to Save the World's Most Endangered Languages. We thank you for being with us today on World Footprints Radio. Thank you so much, Ian. When we come back, celebrity chef to the stars Jerome Brown does a little home cooking next as World Footprints Radio continues. Hi, I'm Nancy from Lansing, Michigan. I'm here in New Orleans and I enjoy listening to the World Footprints Radio. For the latest and last-minute travel deals, visit the WorldFootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners. You can't find these deals anywhere else, and we've seen sales for $9 per night for hotels and $49 airline tickets. 
So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. This is John Mayer for RAD, recording artists, actors, and athletes against drunk driving. On stage, it's fun to push the limits and see where it takes me. Off stage, it's a different story. Get behind the wheel of a car after you've been drinking and you risk causing a crash, hurting, or even killing someone. Father's a public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, RAD, the National Association of Broadcasters, and the Ad Council. Hi, this is James K. from Los Angeles, California, and I just want to say I've traveled all over the world, but whenever I come back home, I always tune in to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Jerome Brown began crafting his culinary skills as an inquisitive teenager who hung around Gardner's Barbecue, a neighborhood restaurant in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Years later, Chef Rome has emerged as a celebrated personal chef to the stars. His journey has been adventurous, but he isn't finished yet. Chef Rome is a serial entrepreneur, and he continues to develop new and exciting projects. But in spite of his busy schedule, he finds time to give back and attributes his service to others as his most fulfilling accomplishment. Chef Rome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, hey, we are always happy to have you with us and uh, talk to you. Tell us about your journey into cooking and culinary arts because it's it's a pretty extraordinary story. <laughs> well, you know, I, I um, as I, as I told the story on many interviews and other in TV shows, I I started out at the age of seven uh, cooking pancakes in my mother's kitchen, and um, and it was really a crossroad because at, at seven years old, if you're messing with a gas stove. You know, something other than turning the flame down should have happened. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. Tell me. So I really believe that my journey to this point was, you know, ordained and and already planned out right from the beginning. And so um, I actually uh, went into the U.S. Army as a cook. Um, I I became a chef in the Army um, in 1988. Um, I had the opportunity to cook for Colin Powell when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And, um, and after I got out of the military, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to go to um, uh, a new country called the Rocky Mount, mm-hmm. where I got the accredited training as a chef that I needed. And this is really taking me all over the world, literally. I've, I was blessed enough to have the opportunity to, to serve as a, um, a food and beverage director um, and a research and development director of an international farm called Fakie, Fakie mm-hmm. Poultry Farms. And, you know, from there, uh, or even before there, actually, I went to Walt Disney World with their professional recruitment department. And I just I literally have been, like I said, all over the world doing what I do. Man, this so, has um, been a whirlwind journey of sorts. But as, as you mentioned, uh, you enlisted in the Army and you started cooking for for a lot of men and women in in our army and 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 I know you got to be good when you cook in the army otherwise you're going to hear about it so what was that like for you 
Well, you know what? It was. It was. Um, it's everything that you probably think it is, and more. Mm-hmm. And when the slogan "We do more before 9 a.m." than most people do all day I, is for 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 our, for military cooks. It should be we do more before 4:30 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, that's what it should say because we uh, we will get up pretty pretty early. But I think I cook for. I think we as a team. Uh, of 25 chefs, we would cook for uh, 1,200 soldiers each meal. And that's an awful lot of people, you know, to come in for eggs to order or for whatever it is that we uh, we were cooking on, on, on a given schedule. But we were, we were pretty busy. We were pretty, pretty busy. And we were, if, if, what? No, go ahead. I was going to just say that we were always the first into uh, a place and always the last to leave. So you know it's it's funny, um, and most people don't realize that the, the military cooks, regardless of branch, um, they work really really hard. So shout out to our military. You you had a couple of I think hard breaks, you know, as you were growing, and um, but you have excelled in spite of your setbacks. Talk a little bit about what kept you going. Well, you know what I believe that the things that burn within us that we call passion is a direct result of who we were were or are meant to be. Uh, when you consider walking into whatever an individual destiny is mm-hmm. or whatever whatever drives you, that is the thing that you know you that keeps you up at night. That's the thing that you would do whether or not you got paid, whether you got paid for it or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and cooking has always been that for me. Cooking has served as a, 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 a way of relaxing. Cooking is a, a way of entertaining. Cooking for me has been, it's been everything I've needed uh, to, to get me from point A to point B. And anyone who's an entrepreneur or has their goals set on or arriving at a certain place, that thing is the thing that keeps you. It's called vision. And, and my, my dream has always been vision. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and although circumstances come along in our life that seemingly clouds the vision or, or trips us up from getting to where we want to be, in, in all actuality, it's the very things that tend to cause us to arrive in a place that we are trying to get to anyway. I know, having roots in North Carolina, too, that, uh, you know, food down there is good. I have never (laughs) had a bad meal, starting with my grandmother, God bless her, from her home in Kinston to every place I've been. It's all good. Well, you know, uh, for for me, uh, when when I introduce my cuisine to the world, it's Southern Meats Gourmet. Mm-hmm. It's an infusion of southern staples with a gourmet twist. It's a it's the wave of uh, you know when you consider in the society and, and people who are looking to be healthier, but yet still be able to enjoy um, those good southern foods, those comfort foods, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and, and presented in a way that keeps them healthy. That's what southern meats gourmet is for me. And my cuisine. My 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 thing is to allow you to enjoy the food that you're that you're eating, and and but not sacrifice taste. And present it in a way 
that allows you to feel special, to, to allow you to feel um, the experience that I'm trying to get over to you through my cuisine. So Southern Meats, that's exactly what Southern Meats Gourmet is. Now, I'm wondering, with all the travels you've done, you know, in the Army and certainly after the fact uh, with, with all of the, the celebrities and dignitaries that, that uh, you've, uh, you've worked for, is there a destination you've traveled to that's also kind of influenced your style? Oh, you know, the truth of the matter is everywhere that I've gone is influenced. But now if I had to pick out one specific place, um, I really had a great time in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, for one, I love lamb, but that's not all that they serve. It was more, much more than that. I had the best seafood of my life in Saudi Arabia. You're kidding me. To, <laughs> no, I, I am really serious. i never forget I was at the, um, I was standing at the Intercontinental Hotel in Jeddah, right across from King Fahd's Palace, right across the water. And um, and one of the restaurants in the hotel was called the Fish Market. And when you go in, they have this huge array of seafood and wonderful vegetables, fresh produce, and rice, pasta, you name it. You, you go in and you pour from everything to, to put together a meal from you, and you tell the chef behind the glass how you want it prepared. And mm. not long after that, they bring it to your table per your your order Mm -hmm. and that was the freshest food that i had ever experienced and to be able to sit there at the red sea and and just look at the beautiful coral and colors that i'd never seen before i mean it just kind of made an experience so i try to keep that 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 fresh clean taste uh with the with the cuisine that i you know i I bring forth and so is that a destination that that really spoke to you because sometimes you know when we travel there there are places at least for 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 Ian and I, they're places that just really <clears throat> speak to our soul. I mean, they just capture us uh, for one reason or another. And you know, f- uh, the the culinary um, the uh, culinary offerings of a destination uh, really appeal to me because I like to eat. Um, but but it, you know, the cultural you know some of the cultural just the energy you can sense in a place. So I'm wondering, is that uh, is is that one of your favorite destinations? And is it because of the food, or are there other things that uh, appeal to you? Well, for, for me, um, Jeddah as a whole uh, appealed to me. You know, uh, the food was a, a, a large part of it because that's what my focus was of being there was for. Now, more from a cultural standpoint, I enjoyed, you know, Genoa, um, Italy, mm-hmm. the port of Genoa mm-hmm. in Italy, even even greater than that, just to, to see people, you know, in the in the different villages around that city, um, pulling fresh from the vine tomatoes, Roma tomatoes, and creating their own pasta, and and shutting down their villages in the afternoon, and everybody coming together and having a good time as a community, not just an individual family. Mm-hmm. Now that that I took even further than my experience in, in Saudi Arabia. I'm a family-oriented um, person anyway. Mm-hmm. And so and so that that culture, the Italian culture, meant a, a lot to me um, as it relates to just the overall experience of it all. Mm-hmm. And that's something I'll never forget, mm-hmm. ever. Now, with all of the travels that you've done all over the world, 
Are there any uh, funny stories, any uh, any incidents that uh, you can recall that uh, just kind of stick stick with you, whether it's been through the traveling or or through uh, through some of the cooking that you've done? Without naming names of any of the celebrities you traveled <laughs> with. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna name a name. Oh <laughs> oh gosh. Shaquille O'Neal. First of all, Shaquille's a great guy. He's very funny. Uh, he, he likes to have a good time, and he and he will clown you every now and then. And uh, one time, uh, well, what one thing that people always find strange about me, especially because, probably because I'm a chef, is I'm allergic to bananas. <laughs> uh, right. I, I love, you know, as a kid, I loved bananas. I ate them as often as I could, but by the time I got to uh, junior high school, I would break out in hives. Don't ask mm-hmm. me why. It just I just can't and I can to this day I can't take the smell of a banana. Um and and Shaquille asked me to make for him a banana pudding Aww. and and I said, Well, I can't and and <laughs> he said, What do you mean you can't? He says, No, I, I want a banana pudding, you're my chef. I can ask my chef to make me whatever and I'm gonna get I want a banana pudding. I said, Shaquille, I can't make you a banana pudding. I, I I'll be sick. He says, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. I said, now, because we were in Orlando, my dad's a great cook. And, and, and I said to him, I said, well, you know, I can get my dad to make it for you, and, he, and he'll bring it over, and we'll do that. And he says, all right. He said, but you know what? While I'm thinking about it, you're the only person I know that could be held up at Banana Point. I can't believe you, man. <laughs> <laughs> <So>. <laughs> now, now I, I know you're also, you know, you have, um, you're you're very committed to to giving back, and I, I, you know, and I know because of the setbacks that you had, um, well, kind of the bumps in the roads earlier, you know, and in 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 the hard knocks, which we all go through. Um, I, I, I'm wondering if if those are kind of somewhat responsible to your uh, commitment to give back to others. I mentor chefs um, and cooks and caterers from all over the world. And I, I just think it's important to really, you know, share with people w- what my journey was, you know, how, how I came to a place um, that, you know, where someone wants to call me a celebrity. Mm-hmm. I don't call myself that. I just think that it's important to give back. We can't always give back by way of money, right. but we can give back by our time and knowledge, our sweat equity, whatever it is. As long as you're leaving a positive impact, mm-hmm. I think that if, if 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 you go anywhere, if you communicate with anyone, um, when they walk away from you or whenever you all part. It should be a positive impact for the rest of their life. Absolutely. It, you know what I mean? And that means that you're not doing that for money or recognition. You're doing it because that person needed to know. Mm-hmm. And that's it. See, mm-hmm. a positive that's footprints, which, which is what we, that's our tagline, leaving positive Absolutely. footprints one step at a time. Now, Chef Absolutely. Room, without uh, giving away too many secrets, uh, what's, what's next out of the chef room playbook that uh, we can see coming from you in the future because I know you've got some exciting things that uh, I know you're looking forward to and the rest of us yeah. are. Um, I, I'm looking forward to um, early spring 
with the release of Cooking with Rome, my cookbook, and uh, that is the, the, the biggest thing. This has been a process that has taken some years to come together. When people see this cookbook, they will learn uh, about my journey, not just the recipes, but they'll get the experience of my the, the recipes that have been influenced by my family, mm-hmm. which is a very close-knit family. My grandmother had 23 kids. Oh, 23? Your grandmother? 23. Bless yeah, her. My grandparents. Bless her. Oh, bless them. Yeah, 23. And we're very close-knit family to this day. For it to be so many, mm-hmm. we're very, very close-knit. And not many people can say that. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'll get the influence of my heritage out of the book. You'll get the the influence and, and the favorite recipes of the celebrities that I've cooked for. And then you'll also get my most requested items in its own chapter. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I think the book is, is going to be a, um, a, a great gift for people, and I think it's going to be a huge blessing to all those who pick it up. Mm-hmm. Much more than the recipe. Now, Chef, with this busy schedule of yours, is there a way for your friends and your fans to follow you? Absolutely. I'm on Facebook. Um, you can go to uh, uh, Chef Jerome Brown on Facebook, or if you want to email me, you can email me at cookingwithrome at yahoo.com. And, and and we do respond to our emails. So if you have a question, by all means, hit me up, and I'll be looking forward to, to speaking with anybody who wants to, to talk to me. And 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 do you have a, a website yet? Yeah, the website is the website is coming. It's under construction. Once it's ready, it's going to be cookingwithrome.com. Okay. Okay. And it's under construction right now. Give it a little time. It will be up, and and there'll be a lot of wonderful uh, information on the website. The recommended recipes of the month, some desserts, some smoothies, some of everything that you can name. It's going to be a great, great, great website. So look forward to that come in the coming month. Great, good deal. Now before we go, I just wanted to. You know, one thing we didn't mention, and we we hinted about, you know, all of the the celebrities that you've worked for. Um, I know uh, Priscilla Presley and um, Shaquille O'Neal, obviously, Star Jones. Um, Oh, my gosh, the list just goes on. Do you have a favorite, or is that an unfair question? (laughs) Never mind. Never mind. We'll just end on that note. (laughs) They're all your favorites, right? (laughs) <laughs> Let's take a number. That's a long line. <laughs> well, we'll do. Well, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I enjoyed my book. After the break, Sylvia Allen shares her heart for the children of Uganda and her quest to make a difference in their lives when World Footprints Radio continues. Hello, my name is Minnie Johnson. I'm from Ann Michigan. I really enjoy listening to the World Footprint Radio Show whenever I have an opportunity to do so. I've gained so much information from the show. Want to travel for less? Visit the worldfootprints.com travel portal to find exclusive, non-published sales on travel. Our dynamic travel deals page updates daily with the latest sales from our partners, and you can't find these deals anywhere else. We've seen sales for as little as $9 a night for hotel rooms and $49 airline tickets. So stop by worldfootprints.com to see where you can go for less. 
Also, make sure you visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services like passport processing. Aloha! This is Danielle. Caleb. Mikai. Calling from Honolulu, Hawaii. We love World Footprints Radio! And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Sylvia Allen is a prominent businesswoman, associate professor of marketing, and author. But since 2003, when she started her nonprofit organization, Sylvia's Children, she has placed the title of humanitarian at the top of her professional mantle. After returning from a humanitarian trip to Uganda, where she was adopted as a grandmother by local children, Sylvia returned with a commitment to help feed, clothe, and educate the children of Uganda. Sylvia, welcome. Thank you very much. Tell us, what was the genesis for starting Sylvia's Children? Well, I, first I'll tell you, I never thought I'd run a nonprofit in my life. <laughs> and secondly, I never liked little children, even my own, because I was always so afraid. You know, I thought they were fragile. I loved it when my kids got eye level. <laughs> and uh, so I, did, I was invited by one of my students from NYU to go over to Africa, and I thought, okay, well, it's an opportunity to go to Africa. And went to Tanzania, Kenya, and Uganda, and it was in Uganda that uh, we saw the devastation of AIDS. And I began to feel like I had two-by-fours two pressing on my chest. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm here. I'm here for a reason. I don't know why, but this, I'm supposed to be doing something. And so the very last day, this man came up to me and introduced himself and handed me a plaque that said, God loves you. And on the back it said, the children want you to be their grandmother. Oh, bless. Oh, so I said, of course, then I went, what children? You know, because I had been doing some teaching over there, and when I'm teaching, I'm very focused. There is no way that I am easily deterred. And so he points them out, and I said, okay, I'll do that, because it was the last day before we were going to leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, give me your name, give me your email address, your cell phone, tell me about the school, you know, da 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 And uh, came back to the United States, and I was going to form an organization called Africa's Children. And one of the women that worked for me, and had worked for a long time, she said, no, use your name. She said, make it Sylvia's children, then there is an identity. Uh, Mm. People can put a face with it, you know. Not that the Red Cross doesn't do a great job, but you don't have a face. Aid to Haiti, you don't have a face. The minute Mm -hmm. you have a face, then you can relate to it. And then I said, okay, well, now let's see, what do you do? So I incorporated. I became a charity within two months in New Jersey. I filed my own 501c3. Mm-hmm. Got that. I had that by uh, April 14, 2004. And then in the meantime, I said, all right, put on your real business hat, which is PR and marketing, because you know how to do that. Um, and I kicked into gear. I pretended I was my own client. Hmm. So, you know, we got feature stories. And I said, okay, well, let's see. Let's start building a list. And every time I would do a seminar, because I teach people how to sell sponsorship, at, and, I, and I'm a tough salesperson. And at the very end, I'd say, would you like to see the other side of Sylvia? Hmm. Oh, yeah, we would love that. So I had a built-in, built-in audience. Hmm. So, and that's how I started. And every time we, we have an accomplishment, you know, I PR the living daylights out of it. So we fast forward now to eight years later. Uh, we've raised over $400,000 in the eight years. The money... All of the money goes because mm-hmm. my, my PR firm covers the administrative costs. 
and uh, we've expanded from 439 children to 1,000. Oh, my goodness. Uh, 250 of our children are orphans. Uh, of that, 110 are sponsored, and the sponsors have agreed to carry the kids all the way through high school. Our school is based on the British model, so we do baby class, top class, and then P1 to P7. Mm-hmm. Then they have to take a test to see if they're allowed to go on to S1, 2, 3, 4. Mm-hmm. And then after S4, they have to take another test to see if they're allowed to go to S5 and S6. But we've got uh, expanded kitchen, new stoves. Where we've just finished a chicken coop so we can have a chicken farm. I'm trying to help them become totally self-reliant. We bought seven acres of land that's now planted in corn so that we have corn for the chickens. The manure from the chickens goes on the cornfield. We can now mill our own corn flour so we don't have to buy that. We have a well. We have a library. We have books in the library, boys' dorm, girls' dorm, uh, 10-unit teachers' housing. Um, We're we're just building now... uh, a facility to hold 40 sewing machines, treadle machines, because electricity is so bad. Mm. But treadle machines so the children can learn to sew, but then we'll bring the widows in at 4 o'clock, teach them to sew uniforms, and then we'll get all the uniform business from all the schools around. Now Mm. they make money, the village makes money, the school makes money, and it's it's just an ever-evolving... process. It's very exciting. It certainly sounds that way. And with all of those accomplishments, Sylvia, thus far, how often do you get back to Uganda to to see these things at, at work? And are there opportunities for volunteers to go? Oh, we love volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I thought you'd never ask. Uh, <laughs> can I can I ask if you know you love radio shows to go with you too? <laughs> Um, I now it's ending up this this year. I will end up going uh, five times. It's a long trip. Yes, <laughs> but but I believe that if I'm doing this job, I'm I'm also the supervisor, and I want to make sure that people's money is being spent the way they've asked it to be. Mm-hmm. So I do three trips with bodies. You know, uh, and then two trips by myself. So March, uh, for example, spring 2011, March 17th to the 28th, is a medical trip. I mm. need, I have two dentists already committed to going, but I need doctors. I need nurses because it is a focused trip on the health of these children and, of course, the teachers and, if we can, the teachers' children. Mm-hmm. Then I go back in May to plan the summer trip. To make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And I'm meticulous about not being an ugly American because we have a lot of us who are ugly. Mm-hmm. And I work with the school closely to say, here's what I'd like to do. Does this fit with what you would like to do? So that they are the ultimate decision makers. Uh, and, and then it also allows me to plant seeds as to what they think they might want to do. Sure. And then we do it that way. And then uh, the June trip, uh, June 23rd to July 4th, it's the worker bee trip. We haul water. We haul corn. Um, they will collect eggs. They will work in the kitchen. Uh, the, I, I told the school, let me have the first four days. It used to be they'd entertain us all the time, and they'd feed us all the time. And I said, stop. 
That's not why we're here. We're here to make a difference in your life. I want everybody to have the experience that the children have so that when they come back, they can tell the story. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last day we put on a big party get entertained. Now, Sylvie, so it sounds like uh, your trips are, um, they're, they're specific industry or focus trips. So you'll have, you know, specifically, uh, specific um, industry trips like the, the doctors, you know, the medical trips uh, the doc with doctors, nurses, dentists, and then uh, a volunteer trip to, for people who can come and do other things like maintain the uh, the the property and the 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 schoolhouse, et cetera, is that how they're organized? Yeah. Okay. So the summer trip is anybody that wants to come, and then we do one more trip um, over Thanksgiving, the week before Thanksgiving, because that's their last week of school, and then we put on a Christmas party for the children. Mm. We bring over gifts. Uh, this year, every child will get a new, every boy will get a new shirt, every girl will get a new dress, and we buy them locally so that it helps the economy. Mm-hmm. And then we bring wads of stuff. We bring, you know, Oriental trading stuff, and everybody gets a goodie bag. Mm-hmm. And then we put on a birthday, you know, a Christmas party. We have a big cake and uh, beans and rice, and we always, I always make sure that we have meat. And of course, last trip, the Jeffrey said, "Do you want to see the meat?" I said, "Yeah." Well, I didn't know he was going to bring me the cow. <laughs> I, said, mm, I don't want eye contact with lunch tomorrow. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're constantly made aware of how American we are. Not, <laughs> you know, they're not unkind. These these people are the most wonderful, loving, kind people. Mm-hmm. But we we just we we have so much, and we forget. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, it takes it takes people like you and 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 others we've met on this show, who you know, it, I mean, the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, and with each of us working, you know, collaboratively or independently, we're all taking a collective step or steps forward, and so. Hats off to you, my dear. And I, I know that, you know, through all these travels and through the people who, who go with you on these trips to, to help out, there has to be a lot of stories about how, how people's lives have been transformed, not only in Uganda, I mean, that's a given, but the people who travel with you to help. Do you have any stories you can share about us uh, or share with us about even your uh, transformative experiences while traveling? Oh, well, I can give you one current one right now. Um, I'm working a trade show, uh, adventure and travel trade show. And the very first, and, and I have a booth, they give it to me for free, and I'm in the Africa row. And the very first year that I did that, a couple came by, and the husband said to his wife, Vicki, this is what you've been looking for. Hmm. They signed, she signed up for the trip. She came over with us in uh, 2006, uh, fell in love with the children, fell in love with the school, came back. That Christmas, her husband gave the library at the school in her name. Wow. Okay, let's go fast forward. She's been on several other trips. Her husband is running in the ING New York City Marathon this year for Sylvia's children. Hmm. So their lives, and they're, they are very comfortable people. They live in Katona, New York. They don't have to do this, 
but they have just absolutely said this is one of the most important things we've ever done. I have another gentleman, Doug Brown, who's studying to be a minister. Mm-hmm. He has made every single trip, and last between last summer and this summer, he lost 100 pounds. And I said, oh, my gosh, that's wonderful. He said, I can't let the children down. Hmm. So, and, and I, you know, of course, it's totally changed my life, mm-hmm. totally changed. Um, external stuff isn't important anymore. I, just stuff. Right. I look around, I'm looking around my office. I go, oh, my gosh, how much stuff can you have, Sylvia? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I go in my house. I live in a house built in 1760, and I've got, it's all antiques and it's stuff I've inherited and everything, but it's just stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, Sylvia, one of the uh, things that you touched on uh, earlier was building sustainability in Uganda with uh, the community that you're working with. Talk to us about some of those efforts and the overall efforts of Sylvia's children to uh, introduce social capitalism into uh, the efforts there in Uganda. You know what, mostly what it has to be, we just have to show them what to do and then they can do it. They have a, a culture. Their learning culture is learned by rote, but not necessarily apply what you learn by rote to something new. So that's what I'm working on with them. So let's just take the school. Uh, the first thing is, of course, the uh, cornfield. Okay, so we got the corn. Uh, we mill our own flour. We don't have to buy feed for the chickens because we have the corn. Uh, we use the husks for burning. So, okay, everything is totally recycled. Uh, with the chicken farm, if if we have 300 chickens, uh, you're going to laugh what I know about. Uh, <laughs> you average 250 eggs a day, which means once a week every kid will get an egg, some mm. protein, and then but we can sell the others at the market. So mm. we're enhancing the diet, but then we can also sell at the market. With the sewing machines, I already told you about that. We have to raise $63,000 for a health clinic. The health clinic will service the school first, but then it will service the village mm-hmm. because the, the services are so horrid there. And, of course, Jeffrey, the head of the school, he said, well, I don't see how that's going to work. I said, Jeffrey, they come in, they have a service, and it, it's worth 10,000 shillings, which is $5. Uh, and they don't have 10,000 shillings. All right, what's the value of a chicken? What's the value of eggs? What's the value of we can work barter? Or they owe us. 10,000 shillings worth of work. They can go hoe the corn. They can, you know, so I showed him how we can make that work. Mm-hmm. And then and then the last thing will be an arts and crafts cooperative because they make beautiful beadwork, they make beautiful rugs, they make beautiful uh, sisal baskets, uh, and on and on and on, the stuff that they make. And my thought is on the arts and crafts cooperative, we now begin to pull the women in from the village. Now we're expanding into the village, and then I want to, I'm their salesperson, I'm going <laughs> to call on the salespeople for the safari lodges and say, okay, I want these products carried in the safari gift shops because mm-hmm. that's where the money is. Mm-hmm. Sylvia, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the experiences in, in Uganda, but we never did really capture your uh, impression of that country and your experience as a, as a traveler. Can you talk a little bit about the travel experience in Uganda. Oh, sure. Oh, it's wonderful. I love it. First place, I love the food. And the other thing, you'll never get sick 
as long as you don't drink the water, uh-huh. drink bottled water. We've got a few things you have to be careful of. Um, but the food is all fresh. You know, there's, there's no canned food or anything, so everything is fresh. The people are extraordinarily warm and open. Um, they have no, they're not making any judgment on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll hug you and love you. The little kids. Uh, the only bad experience I had was a teeny tiny little kid who hadn't seen a white person, and she ran away screaming. I thought, "Oh dear, oh dear, I've Aww. never, I've never scared a little kid before." <laughs> um, as with any third world country, you don't want to wander around. I always take people. I we're always escorted. I use the same company all the time. Churchill Safari and Tours have the same. Uh, guide all the time, Ronnie Masoki. Ronnie has become a part of our family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't wander around at night, but uh, let's face it, there's certain parts of Washington, D.C. or New York City or Atlanta Indeed. or Atlantic City where you're not going to wander around after mm-hmm. dark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I do recall in 2003, the first time we went into Masaka, which is about 40 miles uh, north of my school, there were uh, military on every corner with guns. They don't have that anymore. I don't see that anymore. You do have gated uh, entry for your hotel, and you will have a guard at the gate. But you get to the point where you go, yeah, mm, you know, it's just normal. Sure, sure. Well, I mean... uh I'm I'm anxious. You know, we haven't been to Uganda. We we we've traveled to other parts of uh, of uh, the African continent, South Africa, in in, in particular. Um, but I know our listening audience is, is you know I, I'm hoping that that they're really intrigued and really inspired by your story because we are. And I want to ask because we know it takes a village to really raise anything, even an organization um, such as yours. And so, how can Listeners, leave a positive footprint with Sylvia's children. Oh, my goodness. Uh, okay, several things. We have a website, which is www.sylviaschildren.org. We have a blog. This is the longest address you could ever imagine. HTTP colon front slash front slash sylviaschildren.blogspot.com. They can always email me, sylvia at sylviaschildren.org. They can call me, 732 946 2711. I am always available. I'm always thrilled to talk to someone about it. I'm always will to share, willing to share experiences. And just so you know, each trip that we take, I do take everybody on a two-day safari afterwards mm. because you are so emotionally drained from good and bad and good. I mean, you're just on a roller coaster. Uh, you cry, you laugh, you cry, you laugh. Mm-hmm. And you need a couple of days decompress and, and you know and, and it gives them a uh, an immersion experience which is something that we we like to promote on on world footprints but sylvia uh thank you so much for joining us today sylvia allen is the founder and president of sylvia's children thank you for joining us thank you for having me we hope you enjoyed our show today and we always look forward to spending quality travel time with you and certainly to connecting with you during the week in real time on our social networks, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and others. So follow us on those platforms and sign up for our newsletter and uh, investigate those great daily travel deals that come across our way from our website at worldfootprints.com. 
for Tanya and Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. Same time, same frequency. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.